This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? dramatic or like, sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R 102.7 FM. Yes, good evening and welcome to another edition of Greening the Apocalypse here on 3RRR 102.7 in Melbourne. We are your weekly uh, digestion of the many different variations on what the future may be, based often on the present and the past. Uh, Bushy's my name. In the studio this evening, Katie Dundas. Hello. Hello. How are you? How are you be? <laughs> I'm very well. I'm excited about tonight's show. Superb. Some suitably Scottish weather outside for you. I know, it's very drich. Uh, drich. Drich. Go on. What's drich? Drich is just one of a number of words we have for rainy weather. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Drich. I'm hey, use that. Bishy, I want to hear about how you're enjoying your new electric bike. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah? Yeah, oh, yeah. It's uh, 20... I, I come up with excuses to ride it where I really don't need to use it. And I've got that trailer that I made for it, for towing stuff. I painted that jet black because <laughs> the first time I took it out, it got saturated, so I waterproofed it and painted it up. Um, and I'm thinking at the moment of um painting the whole bike black as well and just and sort of doing it up a bit like if you can imagine al jurgensen from ministry like when he's got like i have absolutely no idea who oh, that is. well <laughs> that kind of studded pierced gothic looking uh metal kind of thing because you know the electric th- the electric bike is brilliant yeah. but i kind of want to make it look a little bit kind of thrash metal <laughs> of course it's you like, do but, she, of course yeah. you do. but i love it are you tempted jed I am. Jed McCarthy. I, I got passed by one of the um, illegal e-bikes yesterday. Yeah. Oh, we so, don't talk about illegal and legal with e-bikes. I'm, I'm sitting on uh, 40 k's an hour in yep. the 40 k an hour zone on mm-hmm. the Vespa and boom, <laughs> up the bike path goes this thing. Yeah, the, a fellow that I passed the other week Motoring. on my e-bike was probably also doing about 40 when I passed him. Um, and he just screamed out, I love that, that's awesome. But, um, yes. Hey, uh, how you be, Jed? Good, other than getting passed by e-bikes? Yeah, no, I am, I'm well, thank you. Awesome, yeah. awesome, awesome. Hey, uh, we're going to go to our guest in just a moment, but I must remind you all that you are still liable for the major prizes if you subscribe for this year's Radiothon. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Ah. Without further ado, what's, uh, what's going to be happening tonight, Katie? So, tonight we are going to talk to Alistair McIntosh, He is a Scottish writer, broadcaster and activist on social, environmental and spiritual issues. He was raised on the Isle of Lewis and we'll hear a lot about that this evening. He's a fellow of the Centre for Human Ecology, a former visiting professor at the University of Strathclyde and an honorary fellow in the School of Divinity at Edinburgh University. 
lots of things here. An honorary senior research fellow in the College of Social Sciences at Glasgow Uni. He's got a BSc in the University of Aberdeen, an MBA from the University of Edinburgh, and a PhD in Liberation Theology and Land Reform from the University of Ulster. Now, he's written a heap of books, and I first came across Alistair McIntosh through one of my favourite books, Soil and Soul, People versus Corporate Power. And we'll talk a little bit about that tonight. He's also written Hell and High Water, Climate Change, Hope and the Human Condition, uh, Rekindling Community, and two more recent books called Spiritual Activism, Leadership as Service, um, and Poacher's Pilgrimage, which is about a walk across his um, the island of Lewis. Um, his books have been described as world-changing by George Monbiot, one of our favourites, mm-hmm. life-changing by the Bishop of Liverpool, and truly mental by Tom York of Radiohead. Awesome. So, <laughs> welcome, Alistair McIntosh. Can you hear us loud and clear? I, I, can indi- I can indeed hear you, and I'm just thinking how truly mental it is that when we were all growing up, when we were boys, we wanted to get motorbikes. And I hear that now that you are all growing older, you want to get electric bicycles. Yeah. Yes. What is becoming of us? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I just turned 40 recently, and the day I turned 40, everything in my body ached, and I hated young people's music. <laughs> Wait until you're 61 like I am. I'm in heaven. I've got a Scottish accent either side of me in the headphones today. I couldn't be a happier man. How wonderful. We actually we spoke to Alistair a little bit last night and talked about how if we probably, if we dug a hole from the studio, we might end up in Govan. Alistair is now situated in one of the old shipbuilding communities in Glasgow and a very familiar place for me. Nice. So it's lovely to have you on the show. Great to be with you, folks. So I thought we might start um, learning a little bit about your life growing up uh, on the island of Lewis. Tell us a bit about where it is and what that community was like. Oh, well, the, the Isle of Lewis is in the Outer Hebridean Islands off the far northwest of Scotland. My father was a doctor in the community there. I grew up with one foot in that kind of world the professional world, you might say, and the other foot in the world of crofting or small-scale agriculture and fishing. So I was immersed in a culture that was still quite self-sufficient in its own produce, with the impact of modernity still falling upon it. It was only in the 1950s, I was born in 1955, that some of the houses got electricity into their homes, that kind of thing. Mm. So I suppose in Australian terms, it would be a bit like you know, being raised with one foot in Melbourne and the other foot somewhere out in the outback. <laughs> <laughs> so you had a, a very um, rural childhood. In, in your book, I think you say community runs strongly in your blood. Um, and I imagine growing up on the islands, it was strongly about community. Well, that, to my mind, is what's so important about it and what can be so important about rural values, whether of the outback or of our coastal communities. Because in such places, you depend upon one another. You depend at a level that is very deep, that ranges from economic things like sharing out fish when we'd go fishing and catch plenty and we'd stop at our neighbours' houses and distribute them because most people didn't have fridges or deep freezes in those days 
the community was our deep freeze, so to speak. But it also goes right through to the psychological and even the spiritual level of a deep sense of intimacy, a sense that we are at some level one another's keepers, that we all we are all bound up as members one of another. And do you think that that bounding of community is reliant upon being close geographically? Or do you think we can create that through other means, more modern ways, online? Or? Yes, well, well, you see, you know, there's two ways of understanding community. Um, the modern way tends to be of communities of interest. You know, I'm interested in that. I'm a member of such and such a club or, or, or whatever. But the traditional way, which to me is deeply important, is understanding community as community of place, that you're geographically constellated, you are held together as a community of place, which starts off at a very small level, your family, your village or your neighbourhood, your town or whatever. It extends up to the state you're in, the nation you're in. Ultimately, our community of place is the whole world. So when we talk in activism about thinking uh, sorry thinking global and acting local we're understanding that nested sense of community that gets bigger and bigger but always starts as you put it earlier in the program with digging where we stand we must dig where we stand and go down from there and then if you dig deep enough the whole you know, you come out on the other side of the world because the whole world opens to you by honoring what is found here you just touched on something there, Alistair, which I find interesting, the idea that, you know, of um, communities um, in place and uh, the difference between communities online because I guess one of the things about living in a small community, rural or on the rural fringe, which is similar to um, my day-to-day uh, -day living experience um, out of Melbourne, uh, you... Like when you get online and join online communities, online forums, you're very much in that echo chamber where if your thing is horse racing or if your thing is um, <laughs> or your thing is uh, how to repair sure. um, old yeah. furniture or whatever it might be, you are really only bouncing off a limited scope of ideas. But when you talk about the community of place, uh, and especially in a place like what you described growing up where your, your father was the doctor and so everybody's... Um, everybody's interests, everybody's opinions would have passed through the house. There wouldn't have been the echo chamber, that repetition. Is that, is that probably one of the key differences we're seeing now? Well, it's very true. And, you know, it's why uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, if they, if they move out of an area where there's not a strong sense of community into an area where there is a strong sense, whether it's a rural area or, or certain types of urban area can also have strong senses of community, they can find it very difficult because... You know, they maybe think they're getting away from it all or something, but actually strong community puts you into a psychological crucible, uh, especially you're in our part of the world, especially in the winter. You fall back on each other on conversation with one another, and therefore you can't go walking about in a bubble. You've, you've got to be open to human differences. Yeah. Um, people often fear community because they think it'll make everybody the same. What you actually find is that the most ruggedly individual people are often those who deeply understand their individuality but are also deeply a part of community and have learned how to get along with difference yeah absolutely yeah that's a really and, you know your australian your australian philosopher val plumwood um a, a woman who has written importantly about feminism and ecology she pinpoints that issue of recognizing difference as being so important in the world today mm-hmm 
Yes, and something that we're not seeing so much at the moment, unfortunately. Um, so you grew up in Lewis, um, and then you started working as a ghillie on an estate and came across a whole different world of people, I guess, than were in your own local community. <laughs> yes, well, I mean, a ghillie, you know, that is, a, that is work that involves rowing boats around salmon locks or being a pony boy, taking the horse out onto the hill and bringing back the carcasses of the deer. And, of course, there you meet the masters of the universe, so there we were engaged with working the land for its fish and for its for its venison. And the, the people who'd come to shoot would be rich people, powerful people from all over the world. And th that was a fantastic experience. You're, again, on the one hand, having the, the grounded humility of crofting people, small-scale farming people. And on the other hand, experiencing generals, admirals, people who ran powerful companies and all the rest of it and just seeing what that world is about and, and seeing both its greatness but also its severe limitations, the smallness of wealth the poverty of being very rich where everything you've got is bought by money and therefore you're never really quite sure if you are valued for yourself as a human being such as happens in communities of place. Yeah. Mm. I find that a very interesting thing, actually, because near where I live is a um, an area just sort of up the mountain, a bit of, of some phenomenal wealth. And uh, there's a handful of people I've met over the years up there who seem very, very keen to have real and grounded and day-to-day -day experiences with very normal and regular people. But they kind of, they always sort of fall back, like if it all gets too tricky, they just go back to the palace in the sky. It, That's sort of, it. <laughs> it's a funny old thing to watch. So on these estates, um, how, how did all of these landowners and uh, barons of industry end up in Scotland? What happened there? Well, that takes you back to the internal colonisation of the British Isles, the way in which, as the British state was consolidating itself, particularly in the 17th and 18th centuries, the ordinary people were dispossessed of the land, um, whether it was in England with the enclosures or later on in Scotland with the Highland clearances and, of course, similar dynamics going on in Ireland with the colonisation of Ireland. And to cut a long story short, basically the people of the land became progressively dispossessed of it and land became to be held in huge units used initially for sheep ranching and then after the Napoleonic Wars when the bottom fell out of the wool market and cheap imports started to come in from Australia, then you know, what you do is that you turn it over to sporting estates, to the hunting and shooting set as playgrounds for the rich. Yeah. So we had really close-knit communities crofting such a strong sense of place, a bardic tradition of storytelling, a really deep connection to land. And then all of a sudden, the people were moved from the land, ripped from what they knew mm. from their connection to place. And absolutely, is that why there's absolutely. so many Scottish people all over the place? Like, there's so many Scottish people everywhere in America, in mm. Australia. <laughs> is that a, as a result that's, of those clearances? That's why we were a diaspora. Yeah, and such a we were scattered people. We're a scattered people. I think there's more people that claim Scottish heritage than there is people living in Scotland, native Scots. <laughs> I wish I could claim yeah. more. 
I'm very diluted. I'm about like 164th or something like that, and it sh- shatters me every day to think that I could have been more Scottish. <laughs> um, yeah, well, there we are. But I think what's important about this is it helps us also to understand what's going on in the world today. That just as we were scattered, and, you know, it wasn't just direct clearance. You know, some people were actually bound and thrown onto immigrant ships and sent away. It was also indirect, because when these communities started to be broken up, the others had to leave because their economy couldn't hold together. So they went willingly. But underlying it was this colonization of the land. And that helps us to understand what's happening to other ethnic groups in the world today and and why in my view we need to open our hearts and places to take in others on the on the basis that a person belongs in as much as they're willing to cherish and be cherished by a place and its peoples we we must have community of heart community of soul and not be limited to thinking of community in ethnic or blood terms absolutely we could do with some of that round here right now. Mm. Absolutely. Um, now, I was watching one of your TEDx talks that you gave to the Fintorn community, which is a semi-intentional community in Scotland. And you talked about Trump, um, and you'd in fact written a poem to him. Now, Donald Trump's mother, is it Mary? Um, yes, Mary Ann McLeod, yes. Mary Ann McLeod actually grew up on Lewis, is that right? Well, she was a Lewis woman, as the pages of the Stonewick Gazette newspaper put it. She was Donald Trump was sprung from the loins of a woman from Lewis. So <laughs> Donald Trump is a son of the island. So can we think about his behaviour and the way, the, you know, the unspeakable things that he's doing and relate that back to the way that his family maybe have some damage yes. around how they were cleared from well, the land. I, I, I've written quite a bit about this, in, including in the forthcoming American edition of my book, my recent book, Poacher's Pilgrimage, which kind of addresses these dynamics, so was less emphasis on Trump, because he wasn't in the place he is at, that, at the time I was writing that. Basically, I'll tell you how I see it. Donald Trump knows how to connect with grassroots people. He knows how to connect with evangelicals. He got 81% vote from the 25% of the American electorate that is evangelical. How does he know that? I suggest that he knows that because he says he got his religion from his mother. He'd have got other things from his mother in terms of how to connect with people because his mother was coming out of that Presbyterian free church community, um, actually the same as Rupert Murdoch's people were coming out of. You know, both of them came out of the same kind of religious community. Now, there's two issues with that. One is that that type of Presbyterian or Calvinist religion does not believe in the fundamental equality of people. It believes in double predestination, whereby you are either of the damned or the elect. And that is a problem if it plays out politically, because it creates a binary worldview where it is psychologically more easy to draw a line, to to create a wall with Mexico and to say Mexico will pay, because you are predisposed to thinking that not everybody is equal, some are damned and others, hopefully yourself, uh, are saved. And then the other dynamic is that you have people who would have held that kind of theology in their very strong communities where 
it, it wouldn't play out with the same negativity because the sense of community was so strong. And they would also realise that Calvin had said things like, we are bound together as a holy knot, and so we must care for one another. Problem is, you take them out of that community, you take them out of the basket of community holding, and they become emigrants, whether to New York or Australia, like was Murdoch's um, grandfather or, or, or whatever, and they no longer have those checks and balances of community. And then, so to speak, it goes rogue. So the way I see Donald Trump is that he understands how to connect with people and to appeal to their deep needs and passions. But at the same time, he's gone rogue. And that's a deeply corrupting situation. Indeed. That was, yeah, incredible. You are listening to a Triple R podcast. We are talking tonight to Alistair McIntosh, live from Scotland. Um, Alistair, we're just trying to work out how we'd summarise everything that we just spoke about, which is quite a difficult (laughs) task, really. Um, but we touched I think, on. I think we got it to a point. We, you got, got it to a point where we're talking about basically how so easily the oppressed become oppressors. That's it. And that's what we see yep. in the likes of Donald Trump. That's it. So we spoke at the beginning about your uh, childhood growing up on Lewis, the real strong sense of community and belonging to land that you experienced there. Um, that compared to the disconnection from land that happened during the Highland clearances and potentially yes. resulted in a lot of um, people with strong, deeply psychological uh, remnants of that disassociation. Um, the oppressed people becoming the oppressors, like Donald Trump, like um, the Murdoch family. Um, and like plenty more, I am sure. Now, you briefly mentioned your recent book, um, the poachers it's gone out of my mind poachers, poachers pilgrimage yes. the poachers pilgrimage where you take a, a yep. walk across Lewis and do you want to tell us a little bit about that book well basically I'm taking a walk for 12 days across the mountains and moors of my home island and I'm using that to reflect on the work that I do with military staff colleges where I guest lecture to staff colleges to senior military and staff colleges across Europe on the subject of non-violence. And so I'm walking across the land, I'm reflecting on the Highland clearances and what has been done to people historically, how people have been disconnected from the land, how their hearts have been hardened so that the oppressed so often become the oppressor, whether of Australian Aborigines or Native Tasmanians or Native Americans or black folks in Southern Africa or whatever, how so easily that happens, how that drives the dynamics of war in our world today and what we can do about it, how that can be resolved. And to me, that's a process of profoundly understanding and rethinking the spirituality of our times, the spirituality we live in, what I call spiritual activism, the way in which we engage for social and environmental and perhaps religious justice in the world, but do so not from a place that is driven by ego, but which is driven by a deeper inner spiritual imperative that is based upon the politics of love. Now, there's a few examples of practical examples of spiritual activism, things that you've been involved with in Scotland in particular. 
Um, there's the land reforms on egg and also the Gal Gale Trust, which is Indeed. an urban yeah. example. Can you tell us a little bit about those two things? Well, to tell you about that, if I may, I'll have to take you via Papua New Guinea and some interesting Australian connections. Uh, um, can I take you on that path? Absolutely. To bring you to the land reform. Of yeah. course. Okay, so what, what happened is that in 1977, I graduated from university and I got posted by voluntary service overseas. Would you believe it? From the highly Presbyterian Isle of Lewis to a Roman Catholic mission in Papua New Guinea, where I was working with Archbishop Virgil Corpus, um, who was from Queensland, I think, and a number of missionary charity nuns. And in the mountains around us, you had something called the Melbourne Overseas Mission at work, with, in, in places like Canabia, Haubango and Bema, with some wonderful priests, Cyril, you know, from your part of the world, Cyril Blake, Morris Adams, John Flynn and Pat Harvey, who I think is listening to this program today, and the formidable Sister Mary. And these people were doing their work at the time when the reforms of Vatican II, the reforms of the Catholic Church, were really kicking in. And that inspired me. It helped to inspire me with an understanding of what liberation theology is about. That we're here on this planet to be liberated at all levels, politically, psychologically, spiritually. It had a huge impact on my work. And when I got back to Scotland, having been immersed in all of that and learning from the native Papua New Guineans about the importance of land, I started to wake up to the fact that we were without land in our own country, that our land had been colonised in the way I described in the first part of this program. And that some people were trying to do something about that. So I got involved basically with some friends who formed something called the Isle of Egg Trust, where the 7,000 acre Isle of Egg owned by one wealthy man, um, to cut a long story short, we, we, we led a process of awareness reasoning, which led to the community eventually um, engaging in market spoiling in such a way that they were able to buy back their own island at a knockdown price. And if you Google the island of Egg, spelled E-I-G-G, you will see today that it's incredible what is happening there. They've got their own electricity grid powered by hydro wind turbines and solar panels. Uh, they've got all kinds of social housing, lots of small businesses, all kinds of um, artistic and musical creativity coming out of the place because the people have been able to reconnect with the land. And, and Egg has been a pattern and an example that's now led to quite extensive land reforms throughout Scotland going on in many different communities. How does that success in Egg now compared, compare to what the community was like um, with a non-resident landowner? Well, with a non-resident landowner, with an absentee landowner, yeah. people were simply disempowered. You know, if you wanted to um, build an extension on your house, you had to have the landlord's permission. If you wanted to run a business, you had to have his permission. And sometimes um, it said that he would try to take a cut of the profits and so on. Whereas now the community are landowners unto themselves. They are accountable to their own democratically appointed trusts. So they can stand for election 
If you don't like the people directing it, you can put yourself up for election if you are a resident of the community. And so the infrastructural aspects, you still have private properties within egg, but the wider infrastructure in which that is held and the common land and forests and all the rest of it, that is governed by the people who live there. It's beautiful. Absolutely fantastic. It really is. Now, you might think... And you see, that's, you know, that's, that's coming out so much from that connection with Papua New Guinea. And, you know, things like your know, Melbourne Overseas Mission, it's probably quite a conservative thing in theological terms, and yet it woke me up towards that, as also did my connection with rainforest groups, the Rainforest Action Group in Lismore, and also in Melbourne. I came to Melbourne in 1989 and spoke to the Rainforest Action Group in Melbourne and the Peace Fleet that was helping to keep the Ark Royal out of Melbourne Harbour because of the nuclear issue. Those Australian things, because I was in Papua New Guinea, was strongly feeding into my thinking. And I just want to say on this program how very grateful I am to that, to, to books like In the Tiger's Mouth, an empowerment guide for social action by Katrina, Katrina Shields, one of your Australian activists. Those things have been central to my work. Oh, and you've done such wonderful work. So that's very, hopefully some of those people are listening and they can, they can understand what you went on to do. So we've learned a bit about land reform in rural areas. Now, what happens if you're in the city, disconnected from uh, land? You're not uh, a landowner. You find it difficult to understand even the concept of connecting to land. And you're disempowered, uh, good, good disenfranchised. Question. What happens then? Yeah, well, you know, what, what happened to me in that respect is that I was becoming quite well known for my work with land reform, especially on egg elsewhere as well, and was helping to stop a super quarry, a huge a massive quarry in, on a beautiful mountain on the Isle of Harris. And then I started getting folks in Glasgow saying to me, well Alistair, it's all very well for you growing up on the Isle of Lewis and doing your work in places like Harris and Egg, but what about us? What about the people whose forebears got kicked off the land and who have found ourselves trapped in intergenerational poverty, poverty knocking on from, from one generation to the next here in the cities? So to cut a long story short, in the 1990s in Glasgow, there was a big motorway protest camp. And the leaders of that invited me to come and speak to them, and I started spending time with them. The motorway got driven through, but at the end of all of that, Colin MacLeod, who was born in Scotland, his father's people are from the Isle of Lewis, his mother's people are from Donegal in Ireland. And then he grew up part of his time in Australia, where he, he came in touch with Aboriginal land right issues and so on. Colin said one day, okay, folks, well, we've shown them what we're against. Now let's show them what we're for. And one of the issues we were dealing with was that we needed to reground a sense of place, a sense of community of place right here in the city. So we took for ourselves a name that was invented in the ninth century in Scotland, the Gal Gale, G-A-L-G-A-E-L, -E the Gal Gale Trust. The Gal are the strangers, the Gale are the heartland people. And we basically said, okay, here in the city, we're mixed, we're very mixed blood. We're from all over the place. Colin's wife, um, her, her, her father is an Egyptian Muslim. Them, for example, Jehan MacLeod is, is from that kind of mixed background. We're, we're all from a mixed ethnic background, but we must make community of place here. So we are all Gal Gale now. 
because that name came into Scotland in the ninth century when there was a lot of mixing of different bloods going on in the Hebrides and in Ireland. And we've now set up this organisation that trains young people in basic woodworking skills, uh, basic craft skills, and builds traditional wooden boats. We've got a huge boat festival coming up on the River Clyde shortly. And this is all about recovering a sense of, of identity, that lost sense of identity, recovering community of place, and learning the meaning of togetherness, putting on meals, shared meals, musical events, and what have you, and filling that spiritual emptiness in people which is at the root of so much of the intergenerational poverty you see and bringing hope back into lives that are otherwise blighted by poverty, addictions, homelessness, mental health issues and you'll know the whole gamut. You are just wonderful Alistair McIntyre. (laughs) Uh, this is just fantastic. I, oh, wow. And we are currently talking to Alistair McIntosh, live from Scotland. I like saying that. Um, so, Alistair, so far we've talked um, about spiritual activism in the last section. Um, one of my main questions for you is going to be around how do we truly connect to country and connect to land when we're so multinational? You know, I'm Glaswegian, living in Melbourne. I have a sense of community around me um, and I, I try to connect to an understanding of place and learn, try and learn yes. as much as possible I can about it. But, I, you know, I'm still Scottish. And you've just been talking about Gal Gale and the work that you do to connect a disenfranchised mob of a whole lot of different heritage people to land through building traditional Scottish boats, sailing them up the Clyde and connecting back into Scottish traditions and rooting yourself in place, which I just think is really a really interesting concept and something to think about for Australia. Um, Now, Jed wanted to ask a question. (laughs) Um, Hey, Alistair. My question was about uh, the clearances because... you and Kate understand it, obviously, with your background. Bushy and I, not so much about what actually happened then. But I'm, I'm curious, given that I assume the, the, the Scottish people were cleared from the land and that rich man got the, uh, got the Isle of Egg and then you got it back. But how did you actually convince this rich man to give something back that had been handed <laughs> down over hundreds of years? Yeah, well, what happened was we, we chose our case carefully. <laughs> Sorry, had you finished? I'm, I'm yep. very deaf. So I don't always catch things. You no, finished no. the question? Yeah, no, that was it. Um, just yeah, the, what happened um, in the clearances? So basically what, what happened is we, we chose carefully. Um, in the case of Egg, the owner was required to sell it by a court order that was following on from divorce entanglements. So he wasn't able to withdraw it from the market. It had to be sold. So that made it a sitting target. And basically... We simply learned from other native peoples what they're doing with their land rights from peoples like I'd experienced in Papua New Guinea when I was there. And we basically recognised that if the natives are restless, then the powers that be are wary about getting involved. And so as soon as the people of Egg started standing up and standing out by speaking out and saying, you don't have any moral right to own this land. We are the people of the land. The moral right is with us. That knocked the bottom out of the market. It meant that the speculators and the the rich holiday makers 
largely lost interest in it. And consequently, the price started to fall. The delay, the sale was delayed and delayed in ways that I, I talk about in Soil and Soul, but I don't need to spell out here. And at the end of the day, there was nobody else really to sell it to except the community who got it for a knockdown price. Now, it was still one and a half million pounds. What's that? About three million Australian dollars. And we just launched an international fundraising campaign. And because what we were doing was so exceptional, you got the media literally of the world homing in. You know, at one time, there were three media helicopters in the sky, the Tokyo News and the whole gamut coming in. And so the fundraising appeal worked and we were able to establish that as a pattern and example. Since then, the Scottish government has introduced a tax on sporting estates and the £10 million a year, $20 million of revenue from that tax is being dedicated to helping other communities to do similar buyouts. So it's now a combination of community endeavour and local fundraising combined with a little bit of market spoiling and combined with having a government which is behind this process as part of Scotland's land reform legislation and movement. Right, Alistair, you've been an activist for your whole life, I think, by the sounds of it. Um, how do you yeah, avoid yeah. activism burnout? How do you keep going? Well, that's why I mentioned earlier your Australian activist Katrina Shields and her book In the Tiger's Mouth, An Empowerment Guide for Social Action. It's out of print now, I think, but you can still get it secondhand on the internet. And um, she, she, better than any other writer I have read, speaks about the issue of burnout. It's also something that Matt Carmichael and I tackle in our little book, Spiritual Activism, Leadership as uh, Service, because... Most political activists, in my observation, tend to become hardened in the heart because of the way that normal politics works. And that leads to a kind of, you know, it, 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 it leads to an emptiness within. As soon as you start hardening your heart, you close off to the ways in which life can resource you. And therefore, people like myself or Katrina Shields or John Seed and his people in the Rainforest Action Group up in Lismore there, they've been looking at this and saying, look, we can't go down that way. We, we can't do work for the environment or for social justice with increasingly hardened hearts that you get in mainstream political process. Therefore, we've got to find other ways of dealing with that loss of energy that leads to burnout. What are those other ways? Those other ways are based, as Katrina Shields expresses it, drawing on the work of an activist called Fran Peavy. They are about heart politics. They're about doing our politics in a very engaged way, but always trying to honour the heart. Just this morning, I've been engaged on social media with some ethno-nationalists, people who think that, um, that our part of the world should only be for white people. And I've been challenging them on that and saying, well, you know, do you think that all the white people who've gone to black people's lands should now come back and leave those places to black people? Of course, they don't think that because they're white supremacists. But the key thing is when you do that with heart politics, you do it respectfully. You don't start abusing them. And at the end of that discourse today, we ended on very warm terms. Now, that's the key to it, because if you can take your opponent 
And if you can recognize the reality that your opponent is your opponent, yet your task is to engage with them but not injure them irrevocably in the process, to push with one hand but to have the other hand behind to catch so that serious hurt is not caused, then you start working with the dynamics of love. Then you start working with virtuous rather than vicious cycles. And that's the kind of politics we need today. That was what, in my time in Papua New Guinea and subsequent involvement with Australian activists like your Melbourne Rainforest Action Group and Peace Fleet, that's the kind of thing that I was learning and have put into action in my work. I think that is the most amazing way to wrap up our chat with you tonight, Alistair. Um, I think to engage with a person who you disagree with um, and recognise as an opponent and to do it in a respectful way is probably the best way to do it. We're all still learning, but that is, um, I think that's quite the perfect way to wrap up. Katie? Oh, just thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure to get to talk to you after been reading your books for so many years. So just, yep, thank you. Oh, well, thank you, Kate. And, you know, I, I say again, you're such unlikely bed partners. If there's any of those Melbourne overseas mission people of the Catholic Church listening to this, thank you to you too, because you are all part of helping me to do the work I have since done since those times in the 1970s. And it's been wonderful talking to you all. Thank you very much, thank Alistair. You. Well, wasn't that fantastic tonight? That was bloody brilliant well done kate in getting hold of him yeah. absolutely <laughs> katie that was absolutely fantastic you're dead brilliant <laughs> way. dead brilliant thank you jed katie bushy's my name <laughs> thank you bushy we are going to see you next tuesday but until then do have all the fun Ooh. this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au